Our scripture for today comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. The word of God speaks to us like this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God to us. Good morning, guys. Doing okay? My heart is full today, uh, getting to see two baptisms in the first service and two more here in this service. And I've never heard a man in the baptismal say, how do you want me? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, maybe we would all ask that question to God today. How do you want me? Um, hey, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to, if you're here and this is your first time at Frontline, or um, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're sorting through the claims of Jesus, or maybe you're, you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been a part of our church for a long time. It's important to recognize baptism is not just something that we're watching that other people are participating in. It's a, it's a communal participation. It's a communal experience where, yes, they are naming Christ as Lord personally and uniquely, but we're also naming him again as our Lord and there's also a sign going forward in the baptismal waters that however you're coming in today, on the outside of faith or just feeling on the outside, baptism is a sign of God's grace, that he's working, that he's pursuing, that he's coming toward his people, that he's faithful to his promises, he's faithful to change. And so if you feel on the outside today, there's a sign even in baptism that God's grace is for you. Come to the inside. There's a sign to you that God's arms are open to you. So, so look on to his son. And so my heart is full getting to celebrate baptism, getting to open God's word with you, getting to open it even in the presence of my friend from, from Liverpool. And so we want to pray as we continue in 1 Corinthians, a series that we started last week. We're picking up in week two. This is going to be a better part of our work for the, for the next year. And so I want you to pray for me as I pray for you, as we pray for our friends in Liverpool and Mumbai and around the world, that God's preaching will go forward in power. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with our friends in the waters, and we want to say with them and with your church around the world, the oldest confession of your people, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus, we ask you now by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you be enthroned in our hearts? Would you be enthroned in our thoughts? Would you be enthroned in our motivations that lie underneath that sometimes we don't even know how to get down into? Jesus, your Lord. 
And so we pray now for the preaching of your word. Would it go forward in power, not because I'm eloquent or I'm able to do anything, but would it be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit here? Would it be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit as it's going forward around the globe with our friends in Liverpool and in Mumbai and the persecuted church across the globe? God, would your word go forward in power? Would this word as we open it today have the full effect you intend for it to have in us individually and collectively as a church? And so attend us now as we try to open it and understand it. Holy Spirit, help us. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we open up to the body of the letter of the book of 1 Corinthians, I started thinking this week about conversations. They're not our favorite conversations, but conversations like I've had, I know that you've had, conversations that sort of have the theme of, hey, I love you, but fill in the blank. Or, hey, I'm really thankful for this friendship that we have, but fill in the blank. And it, I don't mention those this morning sort of as the blindside conversations that we probably think of them as. I, I think about this in the way that I have conversations with my kids, where I have one come to me who says, hey, look at this amazing tower I've built for magnet blocks. And it's like, that's amazing. I love you, but why is your brother bleeding out over his eye? That's an amazing accomplishment. We probably have some things we should talk about. Or my son, as we're learning to play, you know, driveway basketball, and it's like, hey, Dad, wasn't that amazing rebound? I love you, but don't, like, choke your sister with the elbow and the box out to the throat because she can't breathe now. I love you. I'm so proud of you, but we've got some things to talk about. I mention it that way because that's sort of how this book takes off. Paul wastes no time in getting to the issues he wants to address with this church. He gives this really kind and meaningful greeting in verses 1 to 9 that we looked at last week. And then there's this really critical thing he says, this line in verse 2, that's the lens through, the, through which the whole letter is written. The thing he says in verse 2 is going to be the thing that we're going to be looking back on the rest of the way through the book. Read it with me. He says, I'm writing to this church of God that's in Corinth. To those who are sanctified, made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. When we get acquainted with this church, you're going to look back and go, how is he calling this group saints? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, not just them, but with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Written to the church in Corinth, but also written to the church for all time, written to you and me. And so we'll be looking again back on verse 2 through the whole letter for all the baggage that we're going to get acquainted with, with this church and our own baggage. Their baggage will read ours. Verse 2 is critical because you've got to keep in mind, for all who look on to Jesus, you are beloved, you are blood-bought, and you are a disciple of God's own Son. Whatever your baggage would say about you, you are beloved, and you are bought with the precious blood of Jesus, that church and ours. And so this letter begins with, hey, I love you deeply. Verse 3, he's going to say, in fact, I thank God for you all the time. But we've got some stuff we've got to talk about. <laughs> I love you deeply, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints along with those who in every place name Jesus as Lord. I love all that about you, but we've got some issue we've got to take up. Another way of saying it is this book reads a bit like a coach working his team through film session. 
got the position group together. Hey, boys, we've got some work to do because if we don't get some stuff course corrected, we're not gonna reach our potential as a, as a team. We're not, we're not gonna achieve the goals. I love you guys. I love your effort. But we've gotta course correct some things. And so when you think of all the issues, when you think about all the issues that Paul is gonna take up with this church, he's gonna take up some issues with sexual immorality. Like, not just some sexual sins, like this church was caught up into some sexual deviance that even those outside of the church would look at and cringe. That even non-Christians would look at and go, what's wrong with you people? He's gonna take up false teaching in this church. They, they were denying the resurrection. We'll get there eventually. He's gonna take up the issue that some of them were getting drunk at the communion table. Josh said it so well last week. Whatever we're doing here, it's not senior frogs, right? That's not what's happening here. They were getting drunk at the, those are just a few of the issues Paul is going to take up with this church. And so it's fascinating to see which of the problems, if you think about the laundry list, which of the problems does he take up first? Where does he begin? Pick up with me in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, he makes this appeal that they would all agree, that there would be no divisions among you, that you would be united with the same mind and the same judgment because it had come back to Paul, it had been reported to him by Chloe's people that there was some quarreling, there was some divisions, there was some fracturing among you, my brothers. And so what Paul is doing is he's like, I've got to start somewhere with this group. I've got to start, there's, there's a laundry list of things, I've got to start somewhere, but the issue of unity is probably not what we would imagine him to start with. Probably not what we'd imagine him to start with. But you gotta know that this isn't a random starting place. He's not just sort of picking this one out of thin air. I've gotta do all this work, I might as well start here. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there's not, an, the, the ordering of the book and the ordering of the issues isn't random. He's taking up the order God intends for this church. And so he starts with the issue of unity it's where God started with Corinth, but it's also where he starts with you and me as we take up the study of this book. And so if you think about, pull back for a second, big picture, the three big sins of the New Testament. So there are three categories of sin that the New Testament is going to treat with special care and special warning. The three categories, false teaching, sexual immorality, and disunity in the church. Those are sort of the three big sins of the New Testament. The church at Corinth was guilty of all three. Guilty of all three, and yet he starts with the issue of unity. And so here's how we're going to unfold the rest of our time together today. I want us to look at how they were divided. What was the disunity in their church? And then secondly, we'll take up the threats to our unity. How were they divided, but what are the threats for you and me? And then lastly, Paul's going to give us this amazing logic for unity, the gospel logic for unity. So let's take up first in verse 12. How, were, how was the church in Corinth divided? He says in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or there's yet a fourth group that's going to say, you can have those guys, I follow Christ. I follow Christ. So what is happening in this church is they had started fighting with one another over which preacher, over which pastor, over which leader they liked the best to the point that there was actually not just healthy debate about that over coffee. They were at risk of splitting over this issue. 
Each of these groups of people were filled with pride, believing themselves, believing themselves to be more spiritual than the others. And so you have this Paul group, maybe the, the, a loyalist group. This was the group of people who would have said, hey, this man brought us the gospel first. This man first told me about Jesus. This man was the one who introduced me to God's love. I'm, I'm with him. I stand with him. But then you had another group to say, yeah, I hear all of that, but I'm of Peter. So the apostle Peter at some point had made a trip to Corinth, and maybe this was the traditionalist group. I see your Paul, but Peter introduced me to not just the gospel of God for Gentiles, but also the roots of that in Judaism. And so they were accustomed to the law and the roots of these things in Jewish customs. You can have your Paul, but I'll take my Peter. And then there was a third group among them that would say, hey, you can have all of that, but I'm with Apollos. Apollos was an early church pastor and preacher who we know from history was a phenomenal, a phenomenal preacher. He was eloquent with exceptional gifts in public address. And this group that stood with him loved that about him. And they prided themselves because of his brilliance to say, we're spiritually superior to your other groups because we stand with this man who is intellectually superior and can talk better than the rest. So you had these three groups, but then Paul says there was a fourth group. And it's a fourth group that shows up in every era of the church. It's a group that sees some effort from others to sort of institutionalize or follow leadership, and then they reject that thing altogether. It's sort of the anti-authoritarian group thinking that they have a superior spirituality and ethic to them. You can have your leaders. We don't need any leadership because we follow Jesus. You can have your Paul, your Peter, your Apollos. We actually follow Jesus. We, we want to shun the institutions of our day, and we just say we don't need your teachers. God speaks directly to us. And so these are the four groups that are fracturing the church in Corinth. And the, the trouble with these groups wasn't primarily hero worship, as though they were sort of looking to one of these guys to be their hero. I'm sure that was happening. But here's the trouble why Paul takes this up with them. These people had so closely aligned themselves with these teachers because they believed that who they stood with was an issue of greater spirituality or greater righteousness. That they were trying to stand next to Paul or to Peter or to Apollos or even to Jesus somehow and to say, hey, that's my greater righteousness. Look at who I stand with. Look at the company that I keep. But what was true for them then is actually still true for us today. It's telling for you and me today because here's what was actually happening under the lid. When you and I are unsure about our identity when you, are, when you and I are unsure about the righteousness that we have or fear that we don't have before God, we will look to anybody who claims to give us one. We will cling to anybody who claims to compensate for us what we feel like we have at deficit. And so how quickly was the church in Corinth prone to leave Jesus? How quickly are you and I prone to leave Jesus, still confess Jesus, but leave Jesus and convince ourselves that what we lack can be made up for simply by the company that we keep? You can say whatever you want to about me, but look at who I stand with. And so this controversy seems foolish, right? I, I sort of list it out for you and you go, that seems like a ridiculous thing to divide over. Because it is. It is, but, but also... All the controversies, most of the controversies, I should say, that we get ourselves caught up in are foolish and aren't worth our time. 
I do want to make clear that they shouldn't have divided over this issue, which is why we're talking about it, but there are matters that we should divide over. There are things that we should take up as controversy. Things like the authority of the Bible. When there's a departure from the authority of God's word, we should take that up and throw a flag in the ground. Things like faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation, the exclusivity of Jesus. We should throw a flag in the ground on that issue. The triune nature of God, that he is three and yet one. He is one God, but three persons in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Throw a flag in the ground there. But the things that typically divide us are much smaller than that. We, we don't typically divide over those things. We just sort of assume them, and instead we take up issues like which preacher we like the best. I see you guys you come in on a Sunday and you look on the front row and you see who's standing there and who has the microphone on. <laughs> I know you do it. We tend to divide on those issues. We tend to divide on issues of which music style we like the best. We tend to divide on which church has theme park level amenities for our kids. Who has six flags over Jesus? Well, I'll just divide from you and I'll go there. This would be akin to what was happening there in Corinth. This is like some of you guys in our church saying, you know what, I love Frontline, but I'm really a Charlie Hall person. He's my favorite pastor. I'm a Charlie Hall guy. And somebody goes, you can have your Charlie Hall. I'm going to go with Josh Curry. He's the, he's the founding pastor. He planted this church. You can have your Charlie. I'll take my Josh. And then others, you go, hey, you can have those guys because I'm going to go with John Reiner. I just feel better about myself when I'm with Pastor John. I, I just feel I just, I laugh and I feel better about myself when I'm with Pastor John. And there's a fourth group who would say, <laughs> you can have, I'm a Brian Elliott guy. And we would all go, come on with that. We're all Brian Elliott people. <laughs> We're all Brian Elliott people. But do you see how foolish that would be to divide on? That shouldn't fracture the body. We would just sort of name, there's unique ministry coming from the plurality of God's elders, God's leaders in the church. And so the temptation at this point would be to see, okay, I see what Corinth is doing. That is foolish. I see that, I see that unity is important for the church, but we don't do that. We don't do that. Well, hang on with me. Because there are threats to our unity. What's more true is that while we may not have the same threats to disunity as them, the issue itself shines a light on the trivial things that we do divide over. Or the things that we hold on to more tightly than we should that become a threat to our unity. So let me just walk a couple of elephants into the room. Politics. Politics. This is a really popular one that doesn't just divide friendships or communities, but it also divides holiday tables, doesn't it? A second one would be progressive ethics with sexuality and gender. The downward pressure of culture that we should move with them. And so what comes from the outside gets on the inside of us and we think that if the church doesn't adjust, if the church doesn't move with culture, then she's gonna lose her voice or there's some who would go, hey, can you please adjust with culture a bit so I can invite my friends so that it sounds more welcoming to them. The church will lose her welcome if she doesn't adjust with culture and we divide on this issue. And so here's what's convenient about the things that we would divide over in our moment. Because we're constantly plugged into social platforms, when you can't find someone who will agree with you in the way that you want to because of social platforms, you'll always be able to find someone or a big group of people out there who will agree with you in the echo chamber. 
You throw out posts as though you're being prophetic, but the only people reading your posts are the same people who agree with you. And it feels like everyone agrees with you, but it's just the echo chamber. And so here's a few ways. I want to throw out some diagnostics on how you and I can know where the spirit of disunity, the spirit of division is starting to bud in our own heart. The threats to unity in our church. So here's the first one. When you start to assume the motives of other people that don't think like you, and you start to see them as the enemy. When you start to assume the motives of other people, most of the time we do this without even having a conversation with those people. We just sort of hear them or see them or look at them, and based on appearance or whatever else, we just assume that we know where they're coming from and why they're coming from that place. And because they don't think like us, we just shut them off in our hearts and they become the enemy. When that happens, you're on the clock to division. You're on the clock. Here's a second one. When you start to withdraw yourself from community because you find it hard now to connect with people and you don't say this out loud but you do harbor this in your chest. You find it hard to connect with people because they're just not on my level. They're not on my level financially. They're not on my level spiritually. They're not on my level politically. They're not on my level morally. You just see people as somehow less than you. Even though you wouldn't say it out loud, you just sort of know, I'm sort of beyond where that person is. And so you withdraw to find maybe more of your tribe. When that happens, you're on the clock to division. A third way, when ideas from afar and when teachers from afar start to draw your attention to the degree that the voice, that their voices become louder than the voices around you in your community that actually know you, when people that you don't know start to have a greater influence on your life than the people that know you and that you have relationship with, you're on the clock to division. Maybe a different way of saying this one, when social media influencers start to have a louder voice in your life than scripture or your local church community, you're on the clock. Another one here, when, when you start to judge the leaders and the pastors, this one's really popular in the Bible Belt, when you start to judge the leaders and the pastors that have held out the word of God to you and done so with a measure of character, but you start to exchange them for external voices that you have no relationship with and allow them to shape your ideas, you're on the clock to division. I don't like the way that pastor that knows me held me accountable for my sin and called me repent, so I'll just find another pastor out there on podcast who I don't know and doesn't know me and won't get involved in my sin, and now he'll shape my ideas and I'll exchange him for the pastor on the ground. You're on the clock to division. Maybe one more here. When you're no longer open to the possibility that you could be wrong on an issue. When you're no longer open to the possibility that you could be wrong on an issue and no one in your life can say no to you. You're on the clock to have a divisive spirit. And so I know I, know I walked some elephants into the room. But hang with me. However you feel about what I just said, the reason, 
pull, pull close. The, the reason that this matters so much is because the roots of division, the roots, what's down there, the root of all of this is pride. Lean in. When you start to hold your conclusions on politics or sexual ethics so closely that they become part of your identity. So when you don't know who you are or you don't like who you are, you'll cling to anybody, as we said a moment ago, you'll cling to anybody or to anything who will tell you who you are. Someone make this go away and someone tell me what I want to hear. I may not be a lot of things, but look at what team I'm on. You can say what you want to about me, but look who I voted for. Look who I stand with. I matter. I may not feel good about myself, but look at the company that I keep. Look at who my friends are. Look at who I stand next to. And so you'll start withdrawing from other people who don't think like you because they point out the insecurities in you, or you just don't like them anymore. You've shut them off in your heart, and so you withdraw. The insidious nature of pride, you'll either isolate entirely You'll either isolate entirely or in your mind you'll start to place yourself above other people and assume a self-constituted role as judge. I judge you. Well, who made you judge? Me? Because I don't like what you think, and so I judge you. You see, pride, the, the core root of this, why this matters so much is it's inherently, pride is inherently isolating and divisive. Isolation is a popular tactic of Satan. It's a popular, he wants to pick you off. He wants you to isolate. He wants you to withdraw. That's why this is a problem. Division is such a big deal because it's rooted in pride. It leads to isolation. And those two things, pride and isolation that leads to division is inherently satanic. That's why Paul takes it up first. That's why Paul takes it up first. Because think about this, if he starts with any other issue, if he starts with their sexual ethics, or if he starts with their false teaching, he might be able to reason with them and, and get them to agree. But what does it matter if they're being pulled apart at the seams and they're not even unified enough to hold those convictions? So he's got to start here. And this is why this book is so important for us in our moment. We're not just reading the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians is reading us. We're so polarized, we're so fragmented, we're so prone to shut people off in our hearts, not just the people out there in the world, the people in here in this room who sit across the living from you on a Wednesday night at a community group. When they say something that you don't like, you just shut them off. And isn't pride, isn't pride, it's the thing that was at the core for Adam and Eve in that first temptation. The serpent comes and he says, hey, if you take this fruit... You can be like God. You can get a promotion. You can be like God. You'll know good from evil. So they take the fruit. This appeal to pride, and what happens? Adam and Eve, they isolate from each other. They isolate from God. There is division between the two of them. There is division between them and God. Listen, Satan has been an isolationist and a divisionist since the beginning. That's who he is, that's what he does. He will lie, he will persuade, he will give impulses because that's his game. And so unity, right? Unity is precious, especially the unity of the church. The reason that Satan hates the unity of God's people, the reason that he hates it 
is because when God's people are unified together, of the same mind, of the same judgment, holding to a common confession, operating together in love, bearing one another's burdens with humility. The reason that he hates this stuff is because it's a sign to him that his skull has been crushed and his time is short. It's a sign to him. God's people have been reconciled when all he's been doing is trying to divide them. It's a sign to him. And so this doesn't mean that you and I have to agree on every issue. There's room for charitable conversation and debate. But here's what it does mean. Unity does mean that you and I have to agree together to submit to Jesus. So not that we agree on every issue. There's room for political disagreement. But we do agree on the other side of that to submit to Jesus and to submit ourselves to Jesus, our ideas to Jesus, and operate with one another as siblings who have a common father and are charitable together. So that what unity looks like is that we listen to each other instead of assuming motives. We ask questions when there's a lack of clarity to learn from one another across skin colors, across backgrounds, across life experiences. This is, this is the thing, this is the thing that made the church explode in the first century. Jesus said, right, the world will know that you're my, my disciples by the way you love each other. If you think about Acts chapter 2, the church takes off, the first sermon's been preached, people are coming to Jesus, and it says they had everything in common. And you're like, that, how is that, since when has anybody had everything in common? They didn't have everything in common, to be clear, but what they did have in common that was most central and crucial is they agreed that we're going to submit to Jesus and let him form a new community out of us. So whatever else they had that wasn't in common simply was underneath that common commitment. We're going to submit to Jesus and let him make a new community out of us. And so I want to land the plane today and I want to show you the gospel logic the gospel, how do we move from a threat to disunity or disunity itself, how do we move from there to unity? Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He's, Paul's saying, you're gonna make me a part of the divisions in your church? Let me ask you a question. Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here's what Paul does. I love this. He turns our attention to Jesus, and not in sort of the Sunday school kind of way. He turns our attention to Jesus in like the, he's getting underneath the issue kind of way. Because he doesn't just say, hey, you guys are divided. Stop it. Be nice to each other. If that would work, we would have done that by now and moved on, Right? He turns our eyes to Jesus as the foundation and the motivation for our unity. And he does this, remember, because you and I are starving for an identity. You and I are starving to have that made crystal clear, a righteousness. And we search for identities and righteousness through a thousand things. We'll try to find it through traditional values. We'll try to find it through which education model we stand for. We'll try to find it through morals, politics, Sexual ethics, we're just reaching for someone to tell me who I am. Someone makes sense of me. But isn't it true? We've reached for these identities and we are the way that we are. Divided. Divided. 
Only Jesus, track with me, church, only Jesus can overcome the pride and the dividing identities that we cling to. Only Jesus can do that, and here's why. Because when you stand before the face of a holy God, when you stand before his son crucified, who you voted for doesn't matter. When you stand before the face of a holy God, when you stand before his son crucified, who you're trying to compensate for your deficits by the company that you keep doesn't matter. You have to deal with God. And so at the cross of Jesus, the playing field is leveled. And the only identity that matters in that moment, the only identity that matters at the moment of standing before God and his son is the identity that the, cruc- the resurrected man from Nazareth can give you. Because before Jesus, you don't name who you are, you receive his verdict. You don't, you receive his verdict. And when, then, when you see that his verdict isn't one of judgment, but for those who look to him is one of grace, and you see that your sins are now covered by his innocent blood, your sin covered by his innocent blood, there's now new power to be united to people that you would have ever, never otherwise been united to. Because you can look at the other person and say, I have no business being covered by his blood, but somehow I am. And they can look back and say, me too. Me too. People like you and me have no business being covered by the blood of the Son of God. But somehow by his grace we are. So I think we can talk different now. When, when, politics, when politics divides two Christians, think about this. Two Christian people who named the same Lord, the same God, and two Christians now, because of politics, have a rift in their relationship to the point that they can't have meaningful friendship anymore, which happens all the time. Paul's logic shows up here. Is Christ divided? I see that you guys are, but is Christ divided? Rhetorical question. Well, no, sir. Okay. Were your political teachers crucified for you? Were your political teachers crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of the party line? No, sir, I wasn't. Well, then what's wrong here? What's wrong here? When that social media influencer or mainstream voice that's drawing you out and causing you to shift, causing you to shift from the people that you once had the Lord's Supper with, the question is, was that social media influencer ever crucified for you? Did they wash you of your sins? When the things out there start to grab us so tightly that they work their way in here and then start to split us, you and I have to ask again, who is our Lord really? Because it feels like someone else is getting the bigger say. Is Christ divided? Then why are we? Then why are we? And and here's the big finish. Paul drops... Verse 17 on this, and I love the way he finishes this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's why I love this. Because the precious, prophetic, powerful unity of the church isn't built on eloquent rhetoric or a good sermon. 
That's not what our unity is built on. But here's why he says that. All the other divisive ideologies of our day are built on who said it best. I'll follow whoever was more persuasive. I'll follow whoever had the smoothest speech. And Paul's saying, God doesn't need that. God doesn't need eloquent rhetoric. This isn't about eloquent words. If it were, then the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. So the unity of the church is built on, listen, it's built on the powerful inbreaking of God and the public scandal of the cross. This isn't about who said it best. This is about the God-man who did something. Look at him. Look at him. Before the cross, God's own son who was judged in your place. This is not about the power of spoken words. This is about the power of what he did. He's actually done something. This is the grounds and the invitation to unity in the church. And so church, I have a question for you. They're the questions of Paul. Is Christ divided? Think about the divisions. Think about the bitterness. Think about the resentment. Think about the things that split you from people. His questions. Is Christ divided? Who was crucified for you? Is the issue that you're letting divide you from someone else, was it crucified for you? Whose name were you baptized into? This is the essence of our unity together. And so I've got three sort of questions maybe you can take with you this week. They'll be on the screen. Is there any place in your life where you find yourself assuming the motives of others and withdrawing from them? Is there any place where you just sort of assume, well, if you're with those people, you're probably like that. And because you're like that, I'm not like that. And so I'm cutting you off. Is there any place where you do that? Is there any place, a second question, is there any place where you see yourself as on a higher level than another person and you tend to isolate? They're just not my kind of people because my kind of people are higher than that kind of person and you isolate. And finally, are there external voices that you are giving power to and it's affecting relationships with others in the church? Are there external voices that you're giving power to and now it affects whether or not you can actually sit with someone in peace at community group on a Tuesday night? This is the call to Unity Church. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us where Father, my response to the, the scripture today is to ask with, with this beloved community that you've given to me, will you forgive us for the places that we have assumed the emotives of other people and think of them as our enemies? Father, would you forgive us of the places where we've shut people off in our hearts, people that you have sent your son for? Would you forgive us? God, and would you forgive us for being a part of a local community but allowing people external to it to be the primary idea shapers and therefore withdrawing from one another? Forgive us, God. 
And Father, I also have, amidst all the, all the confession of forgiveness, God, what I, what I also have is a positive request. God, my request would be, would you build into our church, would you fill us now with the Holy Spirit and develop in us the kind of prophetic unity that you intend for your people to have that would be a sign to the watching world and a sign even to us that surely God is among them. Look at who he's drawn together. The grace of God is present, drawing people together who wouldn't otherwise be together. God, would you build that kind of prophetic unity in our church? We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.